Hello, everyone, and welcome to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Tara Stingley, a partner with Klein Williams in Omaha, Nebraska. On the program, we span the globe with updates on critical issues from ELA members in each region. Today, we're excited to add to our series on labor law to discuss the new final rule for representation cases that was recently announced by the National Labor Relations Board. Joining us on the program is Ginger Schroeder, founding partner in the law firm of Schroeder, Joseph & Associates, LLP. Ginger, welcome back to the program. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Tara. Very happy to be here. Ginger, you bring a wealth of knowledge and experience in the area of labor law, and the National Labor Relations Board, or NLRB as we'll refer to it, has definitely been keeping lawyers busy over the last few years. Today, we're going to be talking about the new final rule for representation cases that was promulgated by the NLRB in late August. So let's start here. When does the new rule become effective? Well, one of the reasons why we chose this topic for this podcast is because it's it's imminent. The time is upon us. It's going to be effective in 13 days from today on December 26, 2023. So it's a wonderful Christmas present. And I mean that with tongue in cheek for all management side labor and employment lawyers, for anyone, labor counsel or employers who have unions who have not read this rule or if you're in danger, particularly of being organized, I think it's really imperative that you do so and you do so as soon as you can. It's very dense material. It's about 83 pages. I myself practice in this area. I've read it several times and I still don't have my head completely wrapped around it. Right now I'm in the midst of two union organizing campaigns and I'm I'm really having to refer to it quite frequently to answer questions because it's quite clear to me that my elections may take place after December 26th. So it is a timely topic for us to be talking about. Well, that effective date of December 26th also happens to be my birthday. So this is not the birthday gift that I asked for this year. For sure. (laughs) So the NLRB's guidance is not always terribly intuitive. Can you describe generally what this new rule seeks to accomplish? Sure. So when this rule got put into place, in some ways, the current National Labor Relations Board is very union friendly. And that happens, unfortunately, in this area of law. It's very administration specific. So when we have a democratic administration, they tend to be rules and rulings that are very favorable to unions. And when we have a Republican administration, it tends to swing in the other direction for employers. All of that, of course, makes it very difficult for employers and really anyone to know what the rules are at any point during the game. So when the board announced this new rule, it really raised from the dead the prior, what we call the notorious ambushed election rules, which is really focusing on how quickly someone who wants to organize a workforce can get to an election. And in particular, and we'll cover it more in depth later on, the new rule severely compresses the time frame that's between the time a petition for representation is filed with the National Labor Relations Board and the time of the actual election. And the rule has a lot of different components, but when you look at it overall, the cumulative impact is really negative on the employer. It's really going to hamper an employer's ability to resist unionization if they want to remain union-free. And it's going to be very difficult for employers to have the time that's needed to educate their workers, their workforce, their employees about unions and the impact of unionization and what it means to be a member of a union prior to an actual vote. It's really going to push everyone to a quick election. And the fact that it's coming up on us right now, I think, is uh, very concerning. 
Oh, there are some employers who may take the approach or viewpoint of if it's not broke, don't fix it. And with that in mind, what explanation, if any, did the board give as to why these changes were deemed necessary? Well, I don't know if you're familiar at all with Shakespeare, but there's that line that says, methinks the lady doth protest too much. And uh, people look at that line and say, well, that's when we believe that someone is over explaining something when really what they're trying to explain doesn't make much sense at all. And I think (laughs) that's the case here. In the introduction to the rule, the board, of course, fell back on what it always likes to parrot, which is what is the purpose of carrying out the National Labor Relations Act? And they say, you know, it protects the exercise by workers of their full freedoms of association, their right to self-organization, the designation of representatives of their choosing, all for the purpose of negotiating terms and conditions of employment or other mutual aid and protection. But in essence, the board spent a significant amount of time kind of going through the history of representation cases and representation rules to justify what is really a wholesale change in the method of conducting representation cases and this race to the finish line of the election. So they did spend a lot of time saying, well, the 2019 rule was problematic. Of course, it was, you know, done by the Republican administration. It was not subject to rulemaking. It had been in court. Five provisions of it were overturned. And boy, we love that 2014 rule, which is kind of what we're reverting to here under the Barack administration. And that was upheld by the courts. So we're kind of going back to that. But in in essence, they went much further than that. And we'll be talking about that. So this ruling is over 80 pages, as you mentioned. Can you give us a sense of what are some of the most defining changes? Sure. So we know that Section 9 of the National Labor Relations Act, that is the portion of the act that sets forth the basic steps when parties need to resolve a question of representation. And that's the fancy board way of saying whether or not there should be a union in a workplace. That's called a question of representation. So they are as follows. First, a petition is filed by an employee, a labor organization, or employer. Second, the board investigates that petition, and if there's cause, an appropriate hearing is held. There, they determine whether a question of representation exists, and unless the parties agree that an election should be conducted, because then you can avoid the hearing, the hearing officers are authorized to conduct pre-election hearings, but they may not make a recommendation as the actual result. And third, if there is a question of representation, an election by secret ballot is conducted in an appropriate unit. And last, the results of the elections are certified. So that's kind of the backdrop of the process. According to the board, this new rule seeks to commence those pre-election representation hearings sooner. Number two, speed up the dissemination of election information to employees. Three, make both pre- and post-election hearings more efficient, and four, hold union representation elections more quickly. Here you will see, in looking at all of that against the backdrop of what the process should be, the clear message is speed is king. Now, the NLRB is famous for its changing positions depending on what political party is then in charge. And you noted that this new rule is in large measure a return to the 2014 rule that was in place prior to the 2019 rules on representation proceedings. Can you talk to us for a bit about what kind of election timings were manifested in the 2014 rule? Sure, that's pretty fascinating. And in fact, if you do pick up the rule and get through the first 20 pages without falling asleep, it pretty much is a rendition of what the percentage and statistics are coming out of that review by the board. 
As reported out in the new rule, the board really looked heavily at days to the vote. So it's the countdown to the election. And the board says in the rule that the evidence was, the, the empirical statistical evidence was that the 2014 rule had achieved the goal of fair and quick elections. The 2014 rule, according to them, reduced the median time from petition to election by more than three weeks if those were cases involving pre-election hearing, and by two weeks if there was an actual election agreement reached between the parties. They look at how long it takes to actually close out the case, and they said in most cases it closed out within 100 days of the petition's filing. And they also looked at the technology changes that went into effect that impacted on timings as well. So the timings are fairly interesting. When you're looking at the Section 7 rights that are afforded to employees and how that process is kind of looked at by the board, the whole idea here was to make the board procedures more transparent and to have more meaningful information to be disseminated at earlier stages in the proceedings. And according to them, the employee Section 7 rights were afforded a little bit more equal treatment And they go through this list of achievements. They kind of list them out in the rules. They talk about the establishment of uniform timeframes across regional offices, hearing dates being more predictable, litigation being made more uniform, that expense was spared both on the side of the union as well as the employer to dealing with these hearings, that non-employer parties were able to communicate about election issues with voters using modern means. So they go through a whole thing on communication about email, text, and cell phones, that voter challenges were going to be less likely, notices of election being made more informative. And they go and really look at the timeframes in this next-gen software And they conclude the whole thing by saying the 2014 rule did a successful job of furthering the board's statutory mandate. And so you can see that they're setting up how long it'll take to get to an election under the new rule. Now, the 2019 rule was then challenged in court. What happened with that ruling? So when you look at the 2019 ruling, overall, I think the biggest problem that its opponents had was the fact that it was done without notice and rulemaking. So it was kind of just put into place. So it was challenged. I think the most important overall issue to look at is that the district court rejected the claim that the 2019 rule was arbitrary and capricious when they considered it as a whole. But they did, in fact, invalidate five provisions before they could take effect. And those provisions, first, one extended time frame for an employer to furnish the voter list following the issuance of a decision and direction of election or the approval of an election agreement. And when you think about some of these elections, like look look at the Starbucks election, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of employees. And to be able to amass the information that's required in an election list, it really puts the employers under the thumb there to try to get that list out. And so in some ways for employers, the 2019 rule was so much uh, better, but they looked at that there in terms of extending the time. It also expanded the scope of the pre-election hearing. And it provided that disputes concerning like a person's ability or their eligibility to vote or inclusion in the unit would normally be litigated at the pre-election hearing and resolved by the regional director before the election. It delayed certification of election results until the request for review had been decided by the board or until the deadline itself had passed. They looked at the imposed restrictions regarding whom parties could choose as an election observer. These are people who come to the election and they do challenges to voters who come in who may not be eligible to vote. 
and the rule on imposing a mandatory delay of at least 20 business days between the issuance of the direction of election and the election itself, kind of to provide that buffer. So those provisions, they did invalidate and took out, you know, of the rule. And so now the NLRB's pendulum has swung back toward a union-friendly approach. And so looking at the new rule, let's cover some of the most pertinent changes. Can you talk about first the changes to the pre-election hearing process? Sure. So the first is uh, pre-election hearing scheduling. Pre-election hearings are now generally going to be scheduled for eight calendar days from the service of the notice of hearing. That's warp speed in my world, right? That's 10 days sooner than under the 2019 rule. And we all know how busy our practices are and how, in general, our employers are so very busy. So this is going to be a severe disservice. It means that employers are now going to be required to present documents and witness testimony at the hearing with a lot less time to prepare. Also, pre-election hearing postponements. Regional directors will now only have the discretion to postpone the pre-election hearing for up to two business days upon the request of a party showing either special circumstances or for more than two days if the party shows extraordinary circumstances. And of course, these aren't really defined, so we'll, we'll see what those are. But under the 2019 rule, regional directors could postpone for an unlimited time upon a showing of good cause. And it obviously gave the regional directors a lot more discretion to consider the individual circumstances. Third, a non-petitioning party statement of position. A non-petitioning party's written response, which is called a statement of position when you're going to the hearing, everyone normally as lawyers, we lay things out so you're not surprised at the hearing. That non-petitioning party's written response to a petition would generally be due by noon the business day before the opening of the pre-election hearing, meaning it would normally be due seven calendar days after service of the notice. We also have postponement of the statement of position. Now the regional directors will have unlimited discretion to postpone the due date for statements of position, similar to pre-election hearing postponements. And five, and probably more concerning to employers, is the responsive statement of position. This is what the the union will generally put in. Generally, the union is going to be the responsive party. Petitioners will respond orally now at the pre-election hearing, as opposed to being required to submit a statement of position three days prior. So as you can well imagine, that will leave counsel at the hearing somewhat in the dark about what is going to be coming at them in terms of evidence, which is very concerning. These are incredible changes. And not only this, we have the dissemination of election information. There are some new changes to that process as well. Can you talk about the timeframes and the process now for dissemination of election information? Sure. So again, the message here is speed. With all speed, not with all due speed. So an employer will now have two business days after the service of a notice of hearing to post and distribute a notice of petition for election to the employees which is three days sooner than under the 2019 rules. And now also because of the advent of technology, the board is requiring that these things be sent to employees by email if we regularly communicate with employees by email as well. And Ginger, what are the consequences for, let's say that an employer is their first time with dealing with some kind of issue like this, and they may not be aware of these timing requirements. It may take them some time to digest what they've received and give notice of and connecting with their counsel on this, what are the consequences of not getting out these, these notices in a timely manner? Well, it can, the, the results of the election, if they're in the favor of the employer, can be set aside if the notice is not posted on time. And, and you'll even see that 
when we go back to the statement of position that's due for the representational hearing itself, it even says right on it that your failure to timely get that notice of statement of position in, which is always due at noon, not the close of the day, noon on the day that it's due, will prevent you from litigating issues at the hearing that you would otherwise need to litigate. And again, that's just putting the employer in a very precarious position. And Ginger, how about hearings? I'm guessing speed will also be the name of the game here too, but what are the timeframes for hearings in this context? Sure. Well, a big issue with hearings right now is the litigation aspects of eligibility and inclusion. So it's eligibility to vote and inclusion in the proposed unit. The new rule clarifies that the purpose of the pre-election hearing is to determine whether the question of representation exists, and therefore the board feels that disputes about the eligibility or inclusion of certain individuals shouldn't have to be litigated at all or resolved prior to the election. Essentially, let's just hold the election and it'll all work out in the end. We'll figure out all these questions later. Regional directors are going to have the authority to exclude evidence that they think is not relevant to determining whether there's a question of representation. And uh, according to the board, that's going to avoid unnecessary litigation on the collateral issues, which would be a substantial waste of resources in their mind. Of course, underlying all of that is the issue of speed. Again, you know, it's not the issue of substantial waste of resources. In their mind, it's going to get in the way of getting to that election, right, as fast as they can. So the new rule eliminates the 2019 rule to the extent that the 2019 rule requires that individual eligibility and inclusion issues be resolved by the regional director prior to the actual election. And the other change is on briefing. Parties are now only going to be able to file post-hearing briefs with special permission of the regional director following that hearing or the hearing officer following a post-election hearing. And the 2019 rule had allowed parties at least up to five days following a hearing to file briefs. And some of these issues are very weighty when you're looking at very large units, and you're looking at some of the more complex issues of representation, the ability to actually file a brief was really important to employers, and that really is out the door. So let's say that an employer makes it through this entire process and finally makes it to the election. How do these new rules deal with elections and what requirements they place on employers? Sure. So first, we'd be looking at the election details. Regional directors will specify the election details now, so that deals with the type of election, whether it's manual or in person, the dates, the times, and the locations, and the eligibility period. And in construction industries and other odd industries, the eligibility period is important in the decision and direction of election, and they'll ordinarily send the notice of election with the decision. So that's somewhat new. In the scheduling of elections, regional directors will have to schedule elections for the earliest date practicable. And that's that's a key phrase. And that's after the decision and direction of election. And they will not observe the 20-day waiting period under the 2019 rules. So it's really a rush to the election. So this new rule gives us a lot to digest. And considering all of the above changes that you've outlined, what is the major takeaway for employers for the NLRB's new rule? Well, you know who I think really summarized it best is the NLRB member who dissented, which is Marvin Kaplan. And he dissented from the issuing of the new final rule. And he said that it's based on the majority's fundamentally flawed premise that speed is more important than any other consideration. And, you know, when you're looking at whether the board is protecting the rights that are provided to employees under the National Labor Relations Act, he argued that speeding up the process really has a negative effect on employees because they really don't have the time 
to fully consider the election decision. We know that it's very easy to get a union. Everything is set up to help the unions organize a workplace. All the rules are in their favor. It's an uneven playing field from the beginning. And now you add speed to that. The employers were really the balancing method there to try to get information to employees on the import of the decision to have a third party speak for you in the workplace. And of course, we all know that speed was the real goal here because uninformed people will often do what they're told. Well, in an effort not to end on a complete doom and gloom note in this recording, right. do you have any parting <laughs> advice for employers given all we've discussed today with these changes to the new rule? Sure, very much so. So for employers who are union free right now and wish to remain union free, while it's always the employee's choice, certainly the employer has a lot of ability to educate employees. And I think that the new representation case procedures highlights this very pro-labor stance right now that's under the Biden administration and obviously is tipping the playing field even more towards unions. So really, employers have the possibility here of attempting to avoid this by getting ahead of it. And the way you get ahead of it is by engaging in educational efforts before you're under any real pressure and under any timeframes. And that means looking very hard at your labor relations policies and practices, looking at best practices and conducting trainings for your employees so that they're informed before all of this happens and they understand the import of belonging to a union. They understand what it means to give up your rights to a third party to negotiate for you in a workplace and every kind of element of unionization, you'll have an opportunity to give them that information up front. So I think employers should be looking at rolling out a comprehensive labor relations educational program for its non-union workforces. Well, I couldn't agree more. Ginger, education and preparation are key in this area, and you've done both today. So thank you so much. This has been a really great discussion, and the NLRB continues to keep employers on its toes or their toes. So we appreciate you walking us through all these issues. Thanks. I appreciate it. It's a very interesting area and certainly one that uh, no grass is growing on any stones here. I can tell you that. That is for sure. Thanks, Ginger. And thank you listeners for tuning in. If you'd like to connect with Ginger, please click on her bio in the description of this podcast. We also encourage you to reach out to any of our lawyers around the world by selecting Find a Lawyer on the ELA website at ela.law. In addition, search the ELA website where you can sign up to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers and on-demand content from our online library, or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Tara Singley. Thanks so much for listening.